I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers. It'll help you discover new books in all genres. It'll give you unique insights into your favorite authors and especially keep you up to date on what's going on in the literary world. I was just thrilled the other day to welcome Yasha Munk, who is a writer, academic, and public speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism. He also has a podcast, The Good Fight Podcast. I recently spoke to him about his new book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. So let's take a listen to my conversation with Yasha. Is liberal democracy eternal in the United States? Is over 200 years of this thriving environment possibly at risk? If so, why? And if so, what needs to be done? We are joined today by Yasha Monk, whose latest book addresses these questions in his fantastic, if frightening, must-read book entitled The People Versus Democracy, Why is Freedom in Danger and How to Save It? Yasha is a writer, an academic, a public speaker. He's currently a lecturer on government at Harvard, a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. He's the executive director at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. He has a must-listen-to podcast called The Good Fight. He has a weekly column at Slate, also titled The Good Fight, and this is his third book. His first two were Stranger in My Own Country and The Age of Responsibility. Yasha, I'm just delighted you could join us to discuss this provocative must-read book. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I wish that I was always introduced like this, you know, generously enthusiastic is amazing. <laughs> Um, see, that's because maybe you're not uh, meeting with booksellers enough, Yasha. Perhaps so. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's do this. Before we embark on the debate of our freedom, I thought you did a very good job of first starting with definitions uh, for liberalism, democracy, illiberalism, and undemocratic. So, First, share with us the definitions for those terms. Yeah, so I think, you know, to make sense of the kind of political system in which we live and why it is that it's now crumbling, it's now in danger, um, we have to understand the sort of two key elements to it, right? We live in liberal democracies. Now, when I say liberal here, it doesn't mean liberal conservative, it doesn't mean Democrat Republican. Uh, in the sense of liberal, which I'm concerned in the book, um, which has a very long tradition, you know, George W. Bush is as much a liberal as Barack Obama, and uh, Bill Clinton is as much a, a liberal as Ronald Reagan. Um, but what it means is that you want to have a rule of law and to protect individual and minority rights. Um, the second element of our political system, obviously, is democracy. So um, what that must mean at a minimum is that you actually translate popular views into public policy, that actually the political system is responsive to what people want, that in the original sense of a word, um, it's the rule of the people. We rule ourselves. Um, now, my fear at the moment is that these two things are increasingly pulling apart. So what we're seeing is the rise of forms of illiberal democracy or democracy without rights on the one side, and I would argue that Donald Trump and other full-time populists like him are a really strong example of that, um, and forms of undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy on the other side, systems in which the rule of law is relatively well protected, 
that the political system is no longer responsive to what people actually want. And so the thing that I was struck by, and you just used it in talking about the definition, is what you would call illiberal democracy. So to what extent is populism a driver of the potential for an illiberal democracy? Yeah, so I would say that populism is a sort of prime form of illiberal democracy. So how do we understand populism? Right? And populism is this term that's sometimes used very loosely, and so some people are skeptical about whether it's useful at all, whether it actually has a real meaning. Um, and it's true that you can't define populists by a shared set of deeply ideological views. When you think of Donald Trump on the one side, um, somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary, on the other side, somebody like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, Narendra Modi in India, those are all pretty different people with pretty different uh, preferences about economic policy, uh, different views about which um, groups in the population should be favored. Um, so what do they have in common? Well, I think they have in common a kind of shared vocabulary about the world, a shared political imagination. So what they all say is, you know, there's lots of problems in our politics, and establishment politicians would tell you that, you know, the reason for those problems is that the world is complicated, that it's difficult to keep delivering economic improvements for people, that it's difficult to build a multi-ethnic society. But actually, all of that is a lie. The only reason why we have problems is that politicians are self-serving, uh, they're corrupt, and they care more about minorities and immigrants and outsiders than they care about people like you and me, people who are really part of the people. And so what needs to happen? Well, the populist says, I alone stand for the real people. I am your voice, as Donald Trump said in the Republican National Convention. And once you elect me, I'm going to speak for the people, put in place common sense solutions, and solve all of our problems. The problem with that is that it's difficult to actually do that. Once they're in office, they say, who knew that things could be so complicated? Who knew healthcare <laughs> could be so complicated? Who knew dealing with North Korea could be so complicated? But since they don't want to say that they were lying all along, they start to blame others for their failures. They blame foreign powers. They blame treasonous minorities. Not long ago, Donald Trump uh, said that Democrats were treasonous for not standing up at the State of the Union. Um, or they blame uh, independent institutions like the FBI or the Department of Justice. It's claimed that they're treasonous. So that, to me, is what populists are. And it's illiberal democracy because they start to undermine these institutions, because they start to criticize the media, because they start to inflict on the rights of individuals. So they speak for the people, they speak often for a silent majority, um, or at least a, a large portion of the population that didn't have much political influence until then, but it is using that popular support in order to undermine the liberal elements of the system. And so one of the things that was striking to me when I was reading about this is so I get I get the idea of where populists spring from, right? This notion that they're not being responded to, attended to, cared for, or treated fairly. So a populist-type president or leader gets elected, whether it's Hungary, India, or let's say the United States. But once that populist president disappoints them by not delivering – even if they're blaming other institutions, at what point do the people, in quotes, begin to feel like this populist president is not going to meet their needs either and then sort of revert back, like having in the United States an elastic memory 
and uh, elect someone who is a proponent of a liberal democracy? Well, I, I don't think it's necessarily that they are disappointed by the populist and therefore go and elect somebody who doesn't like liberal democracy. It's that often these populists um, get elected with a lot of support from the people. They start off as illiberal Democrats. But in the long run, democracy has trouble surviving if you strip it of its liberal elements. Mm. In the short run, not having to deal with independent institutions, being able to um, put your will onto uh, every part of the state allows you to um, translate popular views into public policies. But once you've done that, once you've taken control of electoral commissions, once you've uh, made it more difficult for people to criticize the government, once you've taken over uh, the judiciary, uh, nobody can actually make sure that you're thrown out of government when you cease being popular. And this is exactly what's happened in places like Russia and Turkey, and it's what's uh, quite quickly now happening in places like Poland and Hungary, where people who were elected with a real popular mandate, who were very popular, have entrenched themselves in the system so much that it's no longer free and fair elections. So that is one of the big dangers that I see. And I think we're seeing some beginnings of that even in the United States. Um, but the second uh, big danger is that um, once populists are in the system, they often keep coming back. And we see it not just with particular populists coming back, but that kind of energy coming back. So what voters might say is, you know what, this guy made all of these promises, and it turns out that he didn't keep them, and we no longer trust him. But instead of saying, hey, you know what, perhaps populism is wrong, perhaps we should be on the guard against liberal democracy and um, give our trust back to most of traditional political forces, they might say, well, let's go to the next person who's even more extreme. Who, uh, who's a real spokesman for the people, a person who can actually deliver on the promises that the last People's Tribune made and failed to deliver on. One of the most shocking statistics uh, in your book was a chart that showed the percentage of people who believe it's important to live in a democracy, and, and the charts organized by decade of birth. Tell us about the outcome of this set of statistics and what's driving it. Yeah, so strikingly in the United States, when you look at people born in the 1930s and 1940s, um, over two-thirds of people say it's really important to me to live in a democracy. Ten out of ten, absolutely essential. Once you get to younger people born since 1980, less than one-third of them say that it's really essential to them to live in a democracy. Now, part of the reason for that Maybe that um, they have a less clear understanding of what the alternatives to democracy might look like, if they didn't grow up threatened with fascism or communism, um, and so they give less importance to that. But it's part of the explanation, which is in itself worrying, because to, for democracy to die, it doesn't require people consciously choosing an alternative to it. It's quite enough for them to be complicit in attacks on it, to say, it's not so important for us to preserve the system. This guy promises us something. Let's, let's see what he can do. Um, so that's in itself worrying. But there's also these deeper drivers of this. Um, one of them is about living standards. So in the United States, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of average Americans doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And since 1985, it's essentially been stagnant. That makes a huge difference to people's outlook on the world. Um, a young person who hasn't experienced his living standards going up, who has real fears about the future, is more likely um, to be critical of a political system than somebody who's seen 
the circumstance of their lives transformed for the better over the course um, you know, of their 60, 70 years and up. So let's take, let's take two threads from that comment. One is somewhere in the book, if I recall this properly, you talk about the Trump voter not necessarily being the person that had already lost their job. If I remember the Trump voter, the average Trump voter had a income of about 82,000 and the non-Trump voter had 70 something. So, if I'm remembering that correctly, it wasn't that they had lost anything yet, but they were they were worried about the prospect of losing something. They were worried about what the future arc looked like. How would you describe that? Yeah, so, um, so, so these figures you mentioned, by the way, are sort of Republican primary voters who are, who are quite a lot more affluent than, than voters in the general election. Um, um, but, but that's right, that, you know, on the most simplistic measures of uh, income, it doesn't seem as though um, economic developments have anything to do with people who vote for populists. Um, for a number of reasons. A, because the average um, uh, voter who voted for Trump then is not any less affluent than the average voter who voted for Clinton or the average voter, for that matter, who voted for Trump's rivals in the primaries. Um, and B, because especially among the very poorest, people actually tend to vote Democratic um, rather than Republican. So it would be tempting to look at this and say, oh, so it's nothing to do with the economy at all. Well, when you look more closely, that turns out not to be true. A lot of the time, the people who do vote um, for populists, not just in the United States, um, but also in other countries, are people who are middle class or lower middle class, who are not very poorest, but who have experienced real economic stagnation and um, who are very afraid that the future will uh, look even more bleak. Um, now, one great way of getting at that is to look at the parts of the country in which populists tend to do very well. Um, and so when you look at any measure from uh, recent economic investment in an area, to the share of jobs that's potentially subject to automation, um, to the level of skills and education in an area, any of those will predict very strongly whether or not people in that area vote for populists. So in other words, um, people who have quite good reason to fear the future economically are much more likely to vote for populists than people who... Um, think, you know what, I think over the next 20, 30 years, I'm going to keep doing better. And and the second piece about young people, um, and as and as you talk about in the book, and you just mentioned, a possible explanation is that young people don't really have any concept of what it would look like to live in a different political environment. You know, before the conversation is over, we'll get to the remedies that you mentioned. But just on this one simple point, what do you think it would take to inform, educate young people in an effective way about what the loss of democracy might look like? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing to say is that we just don't do enough of that. Um, there's some great studies by Bill Goldstein and other people about the ways in which um, civic education has become marginalized in our school system, in our high schools and middle schools. I mean, it's a, essentially civic education, I think, when <clears throat> I'm in my late 60s, when we were in school, there was actually a class called civics. I don't think those yeah. courses exist at all anywhere in K through 12. Exactly. So the number of, of I mean, they do in some school systems and not in others and so on is obviously always 
um, you know, there are states with a huge value countries so that it was complicated, but the studies done by Bill Goldstein at Brookings Institution and others um, show that the number of hours spent on teaching civics has gone down dramatically. I think, you know, journalists don't think of, don't think of it as their goal to sort of, you know, defend and describe the values of our political system. When I talk to my faculty colleagues at Harvard, um, you know, the idea that one of the goals of the undergraduate education should be to make, um, you know, proud citizens who are obviously aware of all of the many shortcomings of our country, of all of the many injustices, but who also understand the values of liberal democracy and are willing to fight for full realization and for its defense, that seems like a bizarre idea to them. That should be one of the things that uh, is our task as, 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 as teachers and faculty at Harvard. Um, so I think the first thing to say is simply we need to do more of it. We need to spend more time actually uh, trying to explain our political system. This is something that political thinkers have um, thought about for, for millennia and from Plato to Aristotle and from Machiavelli to Rousseau, um, the theorists of self-government have always thought about how important it is to transmit our values to the young. But because we've started to take for granted the stability of our political system, um, we've sort of um, started at best paying lip service to it and at best, at worst, ignoring it altogether. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is, I don't know exactly how that civil education can work. I think um, you know, it would be good to study and put much more resources into actually studying what effective civic education looks like. But one of the obvious things is to teach people about um, not just the injustices in our own country, but about how much worse it is in many other parts of the world, mm-hmm. what it looks like today to live under dictatorship, what it has looked like in the past um, to live in systems um, that, uh, that weren't democratic. Um, because I think it's only through an appreciation of that contrast that people can come to see uh, what's valuable in our own country. And whose role do you think it is? I mean, the education system from K through 12 would be an obvious place to begin remedying that lack of information to young people. But what about people that are already in their 20s and 30s? If I remember, it was already kids born as long ago I would say, is in the 80s that are already less committed to the notion of the importance of living in a democracy. So what do we do with the people in their 20s and 30s? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. But anybody born basically since 1980 um, gives, uh, not, not anybody, but the share of people um, born since 1980 who give much lower importance to living to democracy and is even open to straight 40 or for a town alternative is much higher. Um, well, look, I mean, I think... One opportunity is right now, right? I mean, I think people are seeing what it means to have a president and increasingly to have one of the two big parties in the country not be committed to the most basic rules and norms of liberal democracy. They can see how easily institutions that seem to enjoy, you know, very widespread bipartisan support like the FBI can become the playthings of politics in a way that's that's really quite frightening in its implications if it starts to allow... um, the, the president to drop investigations of anybody he likes or to instigate investigations of anybody he doesn't like. So um, I think there's, there's plenty of opportunities in day-to-day political events um, to keep drawing those developments back, not just to partisan differences, not just to saying, no, I happen to be a liberal and um, perhaps most of the listeners to this podcast are as well or most of the people in you know, certain kind of social circles and so therefore, you know, I'm the conservative terrible, but to say, no, this goes beyond partisan differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, honorable, reasonable conservatives 
who, who are also aghast at that. And we need to get back to a politics where, um, however deep our differences about public policy, about economic policy, we agree on some rules and some norms of our system being sacrosanct, because otherwise uh, we're not going to preserve our ability to rule ourselves um, in the future. So, so that's my hope, that Trump presidency can be a kind of object lesson in this. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether or not it will, in fact, have that effect and might just make us even more partisan, even more risen, even more willing to press our political advantage over uh, the longevity of institutions because um, the stakes of losing are now so high. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book is Trump has been so effective in using lies to talk to the American public and has denigrated mainstream press as being fake news, that people begin to lose a kind of confidence in what is accurate. So if you think about Putin, you know, having his opponents arrested and the language he uses that they're corrupt. So Putin's created an environment that is believing that, okay, maybe this guy is corrupt and he needs to get arrested. Yeah, and one of the... You know, one of the reasons why it's so important to have certain ethics guidelines, to have certain procedures in the government, certain norms that um, ensconce the separation between different branches of the government, is that we don't just need justice to be done, we need justice to be seen to be done. Mm. Right? So, um, you know, when the president continually puts public pressure on the FBI and um, you know, denigrates it as partisan and claims that it needs to stop a particular investigation in order to um, live up to its principles. Uh, the problem with that is that nobody can anymore have faith in the work of it. I exactly. don't know right now whether or not the FBI is swayed by the partisan political pressure from the president or whether it isn't. It's incredibly difficult to tell from the outside. And so, you know, when you think about the Russia investigation, um, there are so many strange facts about the behavior of Trump and his campaign um, that it's, you know, consonant with a whole number of interpretations, some of which are comparatively benign, saying that, you know, some people in the campaign may have been compromised and targeted by Russian intelligence, but by and large, um, there wasn't deep cooperation, all the way to, you know, the, the possibility that, that, that key members of uh, the Trump campaign may be, um, you know, essentially Russian agents. And the fact that we can't know these things, the fact that we actually have deep uncertainty about that, makes it rational to engage in certain forms of conspiracy theory. Now, yeah. that is usually the hallmark of an autocratic regime. If you live in the Soviet Union, of course you have to engage in conspiracy theory, because you know that there's lots of facts going on in the politics that you're not told about, so the best you can do is to guess as to what they are. The point of having these protections, of having the transparency, of having these norms of behavior that everybody very publicly and obviously conforms with is to give us confidence that we don't have to engage in that kind of conspiracy theory. Right now, that's really hard. So in the end, you know, everybody believes what the team tells them. Everybody believes what seems to be concerned with the facts and, and what the hunch is. And that is really corrosive of the possibility of actually transacting politics on the basis of truth. Um, it's one of the shameful ways in which our political system has already become degraded um, mm. you know, just over a year into the Trump presidency. So what can we do about that? Well, I mean, we can do more civic education, we can re-emphasize the importance of these democratic rules and norms and so on, but we also need to 
elect politicians who are committed to these norms. Um, we need to punish politicians who blatantly flout them in the kind of way that the president has. So, Yasha, when, as I was reading this book, um, and I would really encourage everyone listening to read this book because I think it helps us to um, look at the world in a more wide-eyed way. I wouldn't recommend it reading it in the middle of the night the way I did because then you're <laughs> up for the rest of the night worrying about everything. So one characterization that someone might bring to your book is, mm, this is a pretty pessimistic view of the way things could go. I mean, we're we're really not at risk. So let's start with a simple question. Would you consider yourself a pessimist? No, I think I'm a realist and I see mm-hmm. that our political system is in danger, that we need to stand up for what we believe, that we can no longer take for granted, that we will be able to enjoy freedom and the rule of law and self-rule for the rest of our lives. And that is, of course, scary. You know, I'm not fatalistic at all. I think it's in all of our ability and in all of our duty um, to make sure that the things we care about um, get preserved and more fully instantiated. So, no, I'm not a pessimist. But I do think the stakes now are very high. I mean, my takeaway in reading the book is that we had not crossed some critical path that makes it look like there is no point of return, but that we are on ricketier grounds, that we're fertilizing that ground that creates a risk that liberal democracy is just a absolute condition in our country. That is right. So there's sort of these deep trends that have helped to rise this uh, anger in our politics. And I talked about one of them, economic stagnation, but there's also deep factors to do with identity and culture, the complicated project of creating an equal multi-ethnic society, which some people are rebelling against, that's the rise of social media. Now, none of these inexorably spell the end of liberal democracy. There are ways in which we can respond to all of those ways in which we can incorporate them into our system. But that's going to take a lot of a lot of courage and a lot of work. So, uh, you know, I can't promise anybody a happy end, as I say, at the end of a book. Um, but for now, there's a lot of things we can do. And so instead of worrying about whether we should be pessimistic or optimistic, instead of trying to guess about what the end of the movie shall bring, um, I think we should think carefully about the things we can do, and there's lots of them. Um, and go out and do them. We should go out and protest. We should go and join a political campaign or run for office yourself or use whatever platform you have to inform people about our democratic values and why we're sacrosanct. Well, and a couple of things that you talk about is, so we often think about the inequity in the distribution of uh, wealth. I think I think somewhere in the book you talk about that 42% of the growth of the GDP over the last couple of decades, 42% has gone to 0.1%, and um, 90% has, um, 1% has gone to the lower 90% of the population. And I think often when we hear conversations about the unequal distribution of wealth, we, we think of it as a social issue, when in fact, I think you very clearly lay out in the book 
well, of course it's a social issue, but it has huge political ramifications. Yeah, so I think um, making sure that we distribute the gains from capitalism and globalization, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply in favor of capitalism, I'm deeply in favor of globalization, I just think that we need to um, have much more robust policies in order to make sure that average people actually profit from them. It's a political choice that this has happened to a much greater degree in countries like Sweden and Denmark um, than it has in the United States it's because of the laws they've adopted. Um, but doing this is not just a matter of economic justice, of distributive justice. It's a matter of political stability. Mm. Unless we give people the sense, again, that the state is doing what it can, that the government is doing what it can to help them, and that um, it does actually have it in its power to give them a better life in the future, they're going to be really skeptical of whether the political system is delivering for them. And that's going to make them open to these very radical insurgents who say, you know what, everything is simple, just trust me and I'll fix everything for you. You know, in the other element, you talk um, in the book that if we want to venture a guess about the future of democracy, we need to examine uh, what is called scope conditions, meaning was past stability brought about by conditions that no longer exist. So what role do you think open or closed borders has in fueling the risk of our compromising liberal democracy? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that's really striking about the history of democracy when you look into it, but I don't think um, we tend to think about in enough detail, is the degree to which most countries are founded either as monoethnic or monocultural. So in Germany, where I grew up, in Italy, in France, um, the idea of who a true Italian, who a true German, who a true Frenchman was, was always ethnic. It was always about um, a shared um, uh, uh, genealogy, a shared history. Um, and obviously over the past 50 or so years, these countries have experienced a lot of immigration. But they're only now starting to redefine what makes a true Frenchman, what makes mm. a true Italian, what makes a true German. So recognize that somebody who's um, black or brown, who's Muslim or Hindu or uh, Jewish, can also be uh, a true member of that nation. Um, and that's a difficult transition, which some people, myself included, embrace and celebrate, um, but that also leads to a lot of backlash and a lot of um, anger. Now, the United States has a version of that, which is that it's always been a multi-ethnic country. There's always been people of many ethnicities on the continent, but it was a deeply unequal, deeply hierarchical society in which one ethnic and religious and cultural group, white Protestants, had uh, huge advantages over everybody else. And that's actually starting to be challenged in a way that um, we sometimes underplay um, for all of the continuing injustices, um, racial injustices and other injustices today in the United States. The country is much more racially equal than it used to be. Um, and again, there's large parts of the population that celebrate that, but also some uh, that don't, that, that, that are angry about that, that are fearful about that, that are resentful about that. Um, and so what we need to build now, I think, is an inclusive sense of patriotism or of nationalism. Um, rather than allowing uh, the right to colonize what it means to be proud to be American, mm. with forms of white nationalism, ethnically exclusionary conceptions of who really belongs to the nation, um, I think we need to uh, emphasize what we have in common across these racial and uh, ethnic and religious lines and say that, yes, there is something special to being fellow citizens, to being Americans together, 
Um, but obviously, everybody who uh, lives here should be included in that, um, including the every religion and so on. So I think often the, the instinct of the left, and my instinct growing up, has been to say, well, perhaps if nationalism is always in danger of turning you know, right-wing and, and quite dangerous, we should just give up on nationalism altogether. We should emphasize that we don't really have a need for collective identities or that insofar as we care about collective identities, we should just celebrate particular religious or ethnic groups. I, I think we should fight the battle for what nationalism mm. means and impose our inclusive meaning of nationalism in that political battle, saying, yes, we care about being Americans, but we will not stand for anybody being excluded from that group. So what's interesting, Yasha, and probably ironic to some, that I think is an important point that you make in the book, is that when we think of the word nationalistic, we somehow absorb this idea that nationalistic is in fact exclusionary, meaning that you define members of a nation in the narrowest way. What's What's fascinating in the way you think about it is that, well, why not define nationalistic as being utterly inclusive of people in your nation? But that isn't the way most people think about it, do you think? No, I think that's open for debate. I mean, you know, look, I, I come, I'm, I'm Jewish, I grew up in Germany, my, my parents are Polish, I write about some of that in, 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 in my first book, Stranger in My Own Country, but... Um, you know, that family history made it very tempting to me to say, well, why don't we just leave nationalism behind in, in the 20th century, the century it's so cruelly shaped? Why don't we um, try to overcome all of these um, forms of collective belonging and simply live as individuals, people who define themselves by their values or by their work or by their relationships, um, by the, what they do with their free time, by their hobbies? I think the last 20 years have disabused me of that hope a little bit because mm-hmm. we see that the sort of half-wild beast of nationalism, the half-domesticated beast of nationalism, retains a lot of its force. There's nothing natural about that, but right. for now it seems to be the most powerful historical force uh, that there is. And if we ignore it, then the worst kind of people are going to come and colonize it and turn it wild. And instead, I think we have to engage with it, despite the danger that it will always pose, despite the fact that it can always be exploited in those kinds of ways, and try and domesticate it further, try and make sure that we can make it useful. And it can be useful. I mean, one of the useful things about nationalism is that it moves us to solidarity with people who are not exactly like us. Mm. Once we define Americans as being of any race, of any religion, we think we owe them something. We have something in common with them. We should have solidarity with them. And that is a very powerful thing. And sharing a vision that, of what we could be together, because I think you talk about in the book one of the uh, risks in defeating populism that goes too far is that the opposition is not unified, that there are, you know, five or six or four factions there, but if they unite, if they unite around this vision of their nation that is inclusive, it becomes a stronger counterweight. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, in the end, you know, you, you asked me about optimism and pessimism. Well, here's the thing. I mean, unless we manage to make people optimistic and unless we manage to make people see a story of us, a story of all of us being in it together, the populists are going to win. As long as people are pessimistic, as long as they think that, you know, the divisions in our country are much deeper, much more important than the things that we have in common, it's always going to be easy to make people uh, vote out of fear and hatred. 
Yeah. And democracies don't survive on fear and hatred. They survive on mutual tolerance and mutual appreciation and a sense of optimism that together we can go towards a better future. Um, and so we need to tell that story. We need to convince people of the possibility of um, taking control of our faith and of the ways in which we have things in common. Well, Yasha, I think that's a perfect sentiment on which to close the conversation. And I think, um, you know, if I uh, take a second to uh, read the last paragraph, and Yasha has a has a, a series of chapters on remedies, in case you feel like we didn't get to it in this conversation. They, in fact, are in the book. But I, I love your last paragraph where you say, it is as yet impossible to predict what the ultimate fate of our political system will be. Perhaps the rise of the populace will turn out to be a short-lived phase, remembered with some mix of bafflement and curiosity a hundred years from now. Or perhaps it will turn out to be an apocal change, heralding a world order in which individual rights are violated at every turn and true self-government vanishes from the face of the earth. Nobody can promise us a happy end, but those of us who truly care about our values and our institutions are determined for fight for our convictions without regard for the consequences. Though the fruits of our labor may remain uncertain— we will do what we can to save liberal democracy. And I do, uh, Yasha, I, I thank you for being what I would call a realistic optimist with a dose of pessimism. <laughs> 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 but, but it doesn't, you know, I think it's important for us to understand the issues, and I want to thank you for addressing them so thoroughly in the book. But if we believe that it is at risk, which is the first step, I think, in our becoming activists in making sure that it isn't lost. Yasha, let me ask um, this last question, which doesn't address the book, um, mm -hmm. but it's a question I love uh, to ask, and that is, what's the book that changed your life? That's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, I'm tempted to talk about all kinds of novels that, that have changed how I see the world and how I understand myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I think reading John Stuart Mill has been really, has really shaped me. Mm -hmm. um, because it's somebody who you know, wrote in, 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 in the middle of the 19th century in England in a very different political moment, but, but already formulated a lot of the values that I think make for a decent and humane society who saw forms of oppression in his society, forms, for example, of oppression against women, which he writes about very movingly, and yet retained the hope that we can use institutions of a representative democracy and the best values that are inherent within a flawed system to shape a better world. Um, and I think that that vision has largely come true until recently, and it's a vision that is always worth returning to. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also shown, I think, that you can be a morally serious and wide-ranging thinker while writing really beautiful prose that is, that is fun to read. Mm -hmm. um, so I think both as somebody who um, acts politically and as somebody who writes about politics, um, uh, it, it inspires me. Well, Yasha, thank you for that. that that's just a lovely uh, way for us to And So in closing and thanking you for joining us on Just the Right Book, I want to remind our 
listeners that Yasha will be touring all over the country and we'll have a link to his website and and on our website we'll list all the places Yasha will be. I know he'll be in New York and Boston and Washington and Los Angeles. We might even get you to New Haven. I urge you to listen to his podcast called The Good Fight. But most importantly, I urge you to read his latest book called The People Versus Democracy. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thanks again to Yasha Munk. Be sure to pick up a copy of Yasha's book, The People vs. Democracy, out now. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. What books are you reading? Who would you like to hear from on this podcast? And what is the book that changed your life? Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>